Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and joining me as always is Anthony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us for our discussion today of 2019's Parasite. something a little bit different in this episode in that we are not going to start with our normal academic framework which I realize is probably the worst thing all of you have ever heard I know I've like destroyed your days so today we're going to start instead with uh, Anthony setting us up for our discussion by telling us about the making of the film so I'm gonna just preface this by saying that I do not know Korean so a lot of these names or like towns or institutions that I'm gonna say I don't know if they're 100% accurate, but I'm just really going to go for it. Excellent. So, so apologies. Bear with me here. Bear with me. So Parasite is a 2019 South Korean black comedy thriller film, which I know is going to it's going to offend you, at least. No, I, I think I'm, I'm down with the black comedy part. I just think of course. That we need to switch thriller with horror and we'll be okay. But anyway, it is a black comedy horror film in which black comedy thriller film <laughs> in which uh, is directed by Bong Joon-ho who also co-wrote the script with Hong Jing-wo. So a little bit about director Bong which is his name uh, his like fun name that's been kind of given to him director Bong. He was born in South Korea and is the youngest of four children. His father was a first generation graphic designer uh, and professor of art at university and the head of the art department at the National Film Institute. Uh, his mother was a full-time stay-at-home housewife. Uh, in the early 1990s, Bong completed a two-year program at the Korean Academy of Film Arts where he made many 16 millimeter film and his films, Incoherent and Memories in My Frame, were invited to be screened at the Hong Kong International Film Festival and the in and the Vancouver International Film Festival. So that's pretty exciting for him. Fresh out of film school, you get your film, two of your films picked up at two big film festivals. It's got to feel pretty good. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, I certainly would be willing to take that accolade. Yeah, I, I, would, I would definitely as well. If anyone wants to show any of the terrible short films I've made at any <laughs> film festivals, uh, please. Or, you, you know... You know if someone is interested in, in us making one of the films that we've proposed in our podcast series, such yeah. as Sheepers Creepers, right? Um, you know, of course. we're still more than willing to, uh, you know, do that. You know our social media handles. You can just, you can just hit us up. <laughs> so uh, along with making his own films, he also would frequently collaborate and do other roles within the filmmaking process. Such as he would do cinematography. He was also a lighting technician. However... Despite his initial early success, it would seem, having two of his films be shown, these film festivals, he spent 10 years where he was just working in various aspects of film, of film production and not being very successful. 
he received, uh, this is from Korean money into American money, about $1,900 per year. That was his salary for about 10 years. And it was very hard for him to make a living, obviously, barely made enough to buy rice. So he had to borrow rice from his university's alumni, which is, that, I'd say, pretty intense hardship. Yeah, that's the true image of a, right, the starving artist. The I mean, starving artist, literally exactly. Be accurate. Uh, so he, but he, after graduating and going on, he, he just spent the next five years contributing to works by other directors, both a screenplay or assistant director. And he's been one of the four writers of the screenplay Phantom the Submarine. And then shortly after working with that, due to his connections with people he made on these films that he'd been working on, he began shooting his first feature film, Barking Dogs Never Bite in 2000, uh, who had, with the help of his producing friend uh, that he had met through some of these other projects. And the film was about a low ranking university lecturer who abducts a neighbor's dog. And it was actually shot in the same apartment complex where Bong had lived after he got married. Hmm. So that's the, it's just a fun little cute story about his first film. Uh, and then he went on to do a bunch of other films that actually kind of crossed over a little bit to the, um, to the United States. Uh, Memories of the Murder, probably more people have heard of The Host or Mother. Uh, definitely probably heard of Snowpiercer. Or, and then he also did a film with Netflix, Okja. And then finally went on to Parasite. Uh, he has a tendency to feature films that have social themes and they are very genre mixy, a lot of black humor, and he loves to do a sudden tone shift. Uh, in 2017, Metacritic ranked Bong 13th on their list of 25 best film directors of the 21st century. I wonder if that rating is gonna will go up after he won the Academy Award for Best Director for Parasite, but that's where he was as of 2017. So a little bit now about the direct development of Parasite. While director Bong was in his early 20s, he took a job as a tutor for the son of a wildly wealthy family. And this family lived in a really, really exclusive part of the town. And so Bong, who had grown up in definitely not as lavish of a place as this home, was going to come into this home and be the tutor. He was introduced to the family somewhat incognito by his girlfriend at the time, who now has been his wife of more than 20 years, who was already tutoring the boy in English. They wanted another tutor for math, he said, so she put me forward as a trustworthy friend, even though I was actually really bad at math. That's how it works with those jobs. It's not as if they put out a lot of ads looking for domestic help. You're introduced. This idea of a poor family infiltrating the lives of a rich one is one where I first delved in. And so he's using his real experience there, and that's how it, he came up with it. And he said that it's very, it was more like putting these characters together in a very controlled environment and then watching the chemical reactions unfold of all these people who come from very, very different backgrounds. So he first began working on this uh, when he was actually working on Snowpiercer. And that's when he uh, considered turning his tutoring experience into a feature film, although it was actually first recommended that this be a play. A theater actor friend of his was like, you could mostly do it in two homes and you could just do it very nicely as a stage play. But director Bong, being the film director that he is, <laughs> said that there was, he thought that there was a lot of really fantastic cinematic elements that could come out because of 
the divide between the rich and the poor that so rarely mix together. They're always separated. But when you work as a tutor or a housekeeper, you're in the most private places and both sides are brought in together in such intimacy. You know, I think it would. So some of my favorite scenes of the film are cinematic. Um, and mm-hmm. so I, I'm glad that we have it as a the, uh, as a film, right? But I do think it could work very nicely. We talked about this with Bug. Um, mm-hmm. I think it could work very nicely as a play. I think it would be an intriguing... There'd be some really fascinating things you could do with stage design that would allow you to, you know, if you actually like had it so that the two houses were separated by a door on stage, they just kind of pass right through it, right? Like, I think there could just be some really interesting um, stage design elements. Or if the um, house was a folding house, kind yes. of, where it like would open up and close down yes. and you could just do a, like a folding house type of thing. That might be fun too. Yeah, I think it would be, I think there'd be some really neat things to do. Um, I can see, again, why he chose the cinematic route, but I think it, you know, kind of undermines the potential, the rich potential this film has to be a stage production. Yeah. So, back now to more stories from the development of Parasite. Uh, After, quickly, quickly after he finished Snowpiercer, director Bong made a 15-page treatment for the first half of Parasite and then got uh, funding so that he could make the film himself. Then he went off to go make Okja for Netflix, and he handed off his parasite treatment to his production assistant on Snowpiercer, Hong Jingwon, and asked him to compile some research for the script. And he says that Bong made it seem like it would be a light and easy project, just a couple (laughs) hours a day. But in a good way, he sort of fooled me, because once I got started, I was basically working on it every moment I wasn't sleeping. So he did a bunch of meeting and interviewing with real life housekeepers, tutors, chauffeurs, and all of those types of people. He would scout houses, meeting regularly with Bong to discuss his finding and share clips from the interviews. And Bong was so impressed by the work that he actually asked Han to take a crack at turning the treatment into a finished screenplay. And he then eventually wrote three different versions, each shaped by feedback from Bong, and then once he, uh, there's a really touching story about how when Han received the final copy of the film, uh, of the film's screenplay, he saw his name appeared along Bong's as a co-writer, and he says his hands were shaking when he picked it up. Couldn't read it on the spot. I had to go hide in my favorite coffee shop and take my time. No, oh, that is cute. So sweet when people just recognize the accomplishments of yeah. others like that. Which you know is probably a good thing, particularly for this film. Um, you know, it'd be really bad if we found out that Bong had, you know, ignored the little people in his making of a film about the yeah. ignoring of the little people. It probably would have gone over not so hot. Mm-hmm. So the house, we were talking about this earlier, was specifically uh, constructed for this. The first floor in the gardens were constructed on an empty outdoor lot, while the basement and second floor were constructed on a set. We built the main floor of the house as a back lot, and for the second floor, it was all green screen outside. When we shot towards the outside from the inside, everything beyond the garden was all visual effects, which Hmm. is incredible to look at because you cannot tell. Mm -mm. But it's beautiful. The house is beautiful. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it's visual effects, which is incredible. I guess that means they did a good job. Yeah, they absolutely did. And uh, this is just a fun fact about the way Bong works is he is notorious for doing a lot of storyboarding. And so he does, that means he does not want or have to get a lot of coverage because he knows exactly the shots that he wants to get. And so sometimes the editor said that 
in order to give them more editing options with limited shots, they would sometimes stitch together different takes of the exact same shot. And so just to get a little bit more variety because Bong just didn't shoot that extra coverage that gives editors a lot of room to play with. And, you know, this is something that we've seen in other directors. The one that comes to mind, of course, first is Hitchcock. He was notorious for creating very elaborate um, storyboarding. As, as someone who has directed, I find myself feeling like that it should be more of a happy medium, at least for me, because I think you should have storyboarding. I think you should have ideas. But also some of the best things happen just sort of on the spot. Um, and I certainly, I think, you know, we run into what, what the editors ran into of if everything is so sparse, there's, there's very little creative room in the editing process if everything has been done in pre-production. Yeah. But I guess Bong really makes it work. He has yeah, this... it certainly paid off. Yeah. Uh, so Parasite's release and reception. It has grossed, uh... how do I say that number? God, I, don't, I forgot how to say numbers. Okay, mm. I got it, I got it. <laughs> Parasite has grossed a worldwide total of 266.9 million, which set a new record for Bong and became the first of his films to gross over 100 million worldwide. It won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival and became the first South Korean film to do so, as well as the first film to win with a unanimous vote since Blue is the Warmest Color in 2013. It was nominated for three Golden Globe Awards, became the second international film to ever be nominated for the Screen Actors Guild Award, and ultimately winning at the SAC and making it the first international film to ever win that prize, nominated for four awards at the BAFTAs, and it became, which meant it was the first South Korean film to ever receive nominations at the British Academy Film Awards. And it then went on to be nominated for six Academy Awards, Picture, director, original screenplay, international feature film, production design, and film editing. As we all know, or I don't know if we all know it. Yeah, I was going to say. But as I know, it went on to win four Academy Awards, uh, picture, director, original screenplay, and international feature film. It, uh, this meant it was the first South Korean film to not only be nominated, but also to win only the second East Asian film to receive a nomination for Best Picture since Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon back in 2000, and Bong Joon-ho became the fourth Asian to receive an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture and became the second to win following Ang Lee. It's impressive, but it's also sad. It's not sad that he won all those things. It's sad that we have to say things like the first, the second, and we are in 2020. I realized 2019 at the time, but like, you know, it's time to diversify because look at these great things that are coming out. It's time to recognize. It's not, and it's not like this is director Bong's first incredible film. Right. I mean, Snowpiercer is a masterpiece. I think The Host is really good, although that was never going to be the Academy's cup, cup of tea. Right. Okja is also very good. But again, I don't think that's the Academy. So I think it also has a little bit to do with like the bias of genre fair. Oh. In, in the academy days. yes but, but anyway it won and that is exciting yeah we'll and take it we often pick films that anthony and i are in a minority either in terms of loving the film more than everyone else or really passionately hating the film or disliking it um when everyone else is sort of like burst with with joy over the, the film but this is a film that i'm pretty sure anthony and i are in solid agreement with the majority of people because we both really liked it and the general scores are 
really, really positive. Rotten Tomatoes critic score is a 99%. The audience score is a 90%. The Metacritic score is a 96 from critics and an 8.9 from audience. And as of recording this on the Letterbox service, Parasite is the highest rated film of all time with 4.6 stars. Excellent. So this is a film that everyone likes, and there's and there's good reason for it. There's a lot of good reasons for it. Oh yeah. So I think let's just like spend I don't know a few minutes just kind of like going back and forth talking about all the things that we rather adore about this film. Um, I'll start with the premise. The premise is fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. It's what what's so interesting about this film is that in a good way, you're constantly feeling like where else could it go and then it goes somewhere else um and i think that that's a sign of a very careful story crafting because some of the best films that i can think of do that where you feel like okay we're only 30 minutes in but like i i feel like the story's over and then it's like but wait there's more and it just kind of always builds on each other but unlike some films where you're like oh well that went a direction that was unexpected when you think back when you see the film a second time uh, you know, you realize that everything is or a fourth time <laughs> or a fourth time because Anthony <laughs> has had a chance to see it that many times already. Um, you get a, you like see that everything is so clearly building on top of everything else uh, in a way that if you were to remove even a single piece, uh, it would come tumbling down like Jenga. It's a shame that the Academy Award didn't uh, did not nominate any of these performances because I think that they do what the best performances do, which is elevate the material that they're given. Yes. And we we use this phrase a lot of like an ensemble performance. And what's mm-hmm. interesting is that on the one hand, it is, it's a true ensemble performance, but also I feel like, and part of this is the writing, but part of this is most certainly the performances. Each actor does such a good job of that there are moments where you're like, no, this is the main character. Mm-hmm. Right? No, 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 this is the main character. And I think, you know, just there's something very beautiful about that. And you're absolutely correct that they should have won something um, for their performances. I mean, and they won the SAG award, which is the Screen Actors Guild Award, which is the branch, a branch of the Academy. So that's something, but the fact that their individual performances were not also nominated because they gave, they did give some of the best performances of 2019. Yes. Because we have I'll to just keep, say it, yeah. <laughs> well, and we have to keep in mind, you know, so like, I'm going to pick on a film that I that I rather adore, but um, Little Women is a fantastic film. Are you and about to hate on Little Women on no, this no, podcast? No, 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 I'm not, because I absolutely, I thought that was one of the best movies that's in my top five of last year. Um, and I think but it's even... No, we were about to have to throw hands. No, no, I love no. me some Little Women. No, 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 and it's probably for, <laughs> it's it's actually above Parasite for me for the year, right? Like that's how much oh, I like. Tea. Yeah. Oh, so, I... so interesting. But those are beloved characters, right? It's it's not that they didn't have challenges as performances. It's not that they the the especially for Florence Pugh, who had the admitted challenge of needing to uh, play the character that everyone has loved to hate for like a hundred years, right? Um. So so certainly. But if you think about like the other movies that came out that year, for the most part, it was, I feel like, no, do I want to say that? Yeah, I'm going to say it. I feel like a lot of the films that came out last year, the performances were people playing characters that you wanted to like from the start. 
Mm-hmm. Um, even with Joker, right, which is, you know, in his villainous ways, is still a character that a lot of people went into that movie planning to like him. Whereas I think that the actors for Parasite had a really rough challenge of they had to play characters that from the beginning were kind of icky, right? Like every single one of those characters is, is irredeemable from the start onward. Um, and that just shows some incredible cast, um, you know, performance ability that by the end you were like, oh, I don't want you to suffer. I kind of like you against my will. Um, and again, I say that's firmly performance based. Yeah. One of the other things that we have to talk about, which we already mentioned briefly, is that cinematically, this is a gorgeous film. Um, it's Beautiful. gorgeous because I think, you know, one of the great things about director Bong's previous experience from Snowpiercer is that he's had an opportunity to really find that fine line between what should be CGI'd or green screened and what shouldn't and how to make it look really very realistic. So the fact that the house is as stunning as it is, and yet it's completely fabricated, um, you know, his, his use of costuming and things like that, but also what is still my favorite scene. And that is the, the descent scene when it's raining, um, when they're running out of the house and they go, you know, and they're going down the stairs and then we realize there's, they have to go down even more stairs and then they're going down, right? Like, and it's just this descent, um, very sort of Dante-esque, um, and it's just beautifully done, uh, through the camera work. And I, I just can't think of very many other montages that managed to so effectively communicate distance. This this film also just does have a way with montages in general. The peach montage it's with so the fun. housekeeper yes. is so effective. And just, and if you thought you were tired of a montage and you were like, montages are played out and I don't like them anymore. Director Bong sh- says, I got a montage for you. And he yes. gives us an inc- the best, one of the best montages I've ever seen. And what's interesting is I feel like you could take that statement that you just said of like, if you're tired of X, um, then this film will show you a version you've never seen. Because I personally am a big fan of the um, the films where you assemble a crew and then you have a heist of some kind. Like those films just delight me as they delight most people, as sure. is evidenced by, you know, Fast and the Furious 27, things like that. Right. Um, <laughs> But this is a film that says, are you a little tired of that heist formula? Well, let me give it to you in a way you never anticipated. And I just feel like there's so much of this film that takes very familiar elements and then offers to this, them to us in delightfully unusual ways. Yeah, exactly. Anything else that you want to praise about the film? I mean, it, just assume that I like everything about this film. Okay, I, I, can... I think this is a perfect film. I'll say it. I, I really do. Really? I, I define a perfect film as something that, a film that I don't think I could change anything to and I could make it better. I think that this film needs every second and I think every second perfectly builds to the next and comes to create a perfect film. I couldn't do anything to make this film better. Including the ending? including the ending. I'll stand by it. Interesting. That may be the first time ever that you've said you would stand by an ending. Because I think that without it, without the last couple of minutes, I think that you would lack narrative closure. And so, and I think that is important to like give, to tie up some of those loose ends and finish the mystery of the film of what happened with the father. And then I also think that it further pushes the commentary on class 
forward because this the son's ultimate dream is to just make a lot of money and to just further perpetuate this cycle. And you're like, oh, that's good. That's a happy ending. But then you think about it and you're like, no, that's a terrible ending. That's so sad. I hope I'm, and then the film allows you to think that you're watching what has actually happened, is what is actually happening. And then it subverts that by immediately panning down and showing you the sun back in their same basement home. Thus showing that it was all just his imagined experience of what could happen, which gives the film, of, I think, a very, very satisfying conclusion because it's just like, ah, oh, so the only thing that poor people can really do is wish to be rich. Interesting. That's it. Okay. I'm going to have to ponder that for a little bit, but I, I have a feeling that you've convinced me. Um, so, okay then. So then a perfect film for Anthony, certainly a near perfect film for me, if not perfect. Um, I think that when I think of all my sort of top five films actually of last year, they're all ones that are near, if not perfect in my eye. Now it is time for us to have a battle to the death. Two of us enter, two of us will technically leave because we're not in the same space. Correct. But no, no death will <laughs> actually be had here. But emotional death will be had as we enter into a possibly lively debate. I have no idea how it's actually going to turn out. Discussion of why this is or is not and should or should not be considered a horror film. Anthony, do you want to have opening remarks or do you want me to have opening remarks? Well, I think it's certainly a lot easier to negate something than it is to defend a thing. But you have the burden of proof, so I suppose I'll allow you to go first. Gee, thanks. Okay, so. <laughs> Just, it's, it's what the rules of argumentation yeah, dictate. Yeah. Okay, I can do this. Okay, so <laughs> in our Contagion episode, I argued that Contagion was not and should not be considered a horror film. And I made some statements that I now have to stick by mm -hmm. in the heat of the moment. Uh, that I actually think I'm still willing to stick by. Um, but we'll see. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I said in Contagion was that a horror film needed to have a framework or a metaphorical lens, but it didn't have to be an explicit metaphor, but had to have some sort of framework that was encouraging us to view the reality of the world through this framework. And that framework was creating the horrific sort of experience. Does that sound more or less like what I said once upon a time? That that sounds close enough. Okay. That, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's go with it. Okay, so the thing is, is that we've, we've talked about this before, both on the podcast and off, um, and that is that if you read any just regular definition of the horror genre, it can be very easy if you're being a contrarian to, to say, well, that could also apply to, and then you insert in, a film that most people very categorically will say is not horror. So I may have mentioned this reference before, but when I was getting ready to start doing my dissertation stuff, um, but like before I actually officially started dissertating, I was in a class where I had to sort of defend my ideas. And it was a very weird class because each of us had very, very different dissertation topics. Like one woman was writing about witches um, in you know New England and somebody else was writing about... Um, 
I think this was the same year he was writing about the Creation Museum. Um, and so, like, uh. yeah, so really different, I mean, like, very different uh, areas of, of study. And so it was both really rewarding, but it was also very challenging because I was finding myself constantly having to to defend things I didn't think I'd have to defend, such as what actually constituted a horror film. And when I would offer the definition that, you know, is sort of the worst definition in the world of horror horrifies us, um, you know, the instant response was, well, what about films like Sophie's Choice? And I'm sure you could add other films to that list as well, right? Which are going to be about this horrible decision that someone has to make about a real life horrible uh, atrocity. And I think most people who aren't just trying to, to have lengthy conversations would just automatically say, well, of course, Sophie's Choice is not a horror film. Um, right. But, they'd offer like the Supreme Court justice argument. You know it when you see it. That yeah. They use for pornography, but can also kind of be lifted for horror. And I think, you know, that's what makes it really delightful, but also very problematic because I think, although I'm not certain, that if you were to have a hundred films um, that you said, this is pornography, and, and you weren't trying to be, like, difficult, you just, like, picked films that were 100% pornography, that probably 95 of them would be labeled that by everyone else, right? If uh, But... I feel like if you took a hundred horror films uh, that were just like the top hundred horror films of all time, you might only get people to agree on 80 of them, right? Because I think that there's something about horror that's a little bit harder to define. So I'm going with the way to distinguish between a film that is about creating an affective horror to help us review the world. Um, that it's that process of creating a framework or a lens that is unusual either through exaggeration or through the creation of a monster or something in order to have us better understand the realities we're encountering. For me, I didn't feel like that's what was happening with Contagion, um, but I do feel like that's what's happening in Parasite because while it is 100% true that the disparity between classes, particularly in South Korea, is egregious, and while it is certainly true that the lives of the people in that film are reflections of carefully crafted research about people in those lives the film is nevertheless using an exaggerated framework in this time in this case i think a satirical framework to create an affect of horror because there are rarely going to be situations that are going to be like it is in parasite thoughts i think i will accept that definition of horror okay thank however you. i do not think that that constitutes parasite is a horror because yeah. at this point I will now offer my counter yes. initial, which is that I think that it does fit better in the thriller category rather than a horror film. Okay. So define for me the distinguishing feature between a thriller and horror. So I think that thrillers do tend to be more psychological and the they're really hinged upon by their numerous plot twists and turns, and they're intentionally trying to confuse and subvert expectations to give you that sense of thrill. And so I, and I think that is something that Parasite fits into really, really nicely. And I don't think that the same can be said of the definition that you offered for horror. I'm not sure it is entirely problematic to think of a film as entering both into a psychological thriller and a horror simultaneously.
I yeah, I could I could agree with that. However, I don't think this is a case where it, it's happening. But I feel like on a bigger on a bigger scale, my my problem with with the distinction that you're crafting means that there are some films that I feel we have categorically defined as horror that then we would um, lose out on. So I think that Martyrs is also a film that is about, you know, the psychological twists and turns and plot twists to help us think about the unstable mental and emotional conditions of characters. Mm -hmm. I think that Hereditary does the same thing. And I think that both those films are horror. I think they are. I think they are horror thrillers, but I think that this is a comedy thriller. Okay. So I'm going to explain why this matters to me. Um, (laughs) This matters because I feel like by not labeling it as horror, what's essentially happening is the same thing that always seems to happen. And that is that there's this dismissal that we could possibly have a film that is first off genre bending um, and have it be also horror, but also that we can have a film that is as good as Parasite is um, at making the points that it makes and not have it be horror. So I just, I pulled up a whole bunch of articles that were talking about um, this film. And these are from, you know, just, there's obviously not any scholarship written, but this is from sources ranging from like Pop Sugar to the National Review, just a whole bunch of sort of uh, responses. And if you look at them, the things that you'll notice are people saying things like, at first glance, the bleak trailer and creepy title. This is from the Pop Sugar article by Stacy Wynn. And she says, at first glance, the bleak trailer and creepy title suggests that it's going to be a classic horror film with monsters and spooks. And then she says, but watching the film, I surprisingly found myself laughing through it instead of getting scared by it. And then here's where I have a problem with the, what she will then argue is why this film fits into the psychological thriller genre. That's because the film is really more of a psychological thriller where the terrors are slow burns as opposed to freaky jump scares. And looking at other people's uh, discussions of the film, such as, such as the one by Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian, where he calls the Kim family, which is the poorer family, the parasites. At one point, he calls the children wicked. Um, and he basically reads it as a sort of morality piece that I think thrillers are often having because thrillers have that sort of very clearly defined sense of, of right and wrong, um, good guy and bad guy built into their genre in a way that I think horror has begun to play out of. I realize that, uh, you know, Jordan Peele has called Get Out a social thriller. Um, and lots of comparisons are being made, uh, I think rightly so, between Parasite and Get Out, even between Parasite, uh, Midsommar and, and Get Out. And I, I don't disagree. I think it is a social thriller, but I think that this film becomes richer for viewing it through the horror lens. And I think that just sort of dismissing that horror framework takes away some of the more nuanced layers of, of conversation that are capable of being had if you view this as a horror I'm just, I'm now I'm just a little, I've got a couple more questions then. Yes. Because I'm not sure I buy that, or the, buy the argument okay. that, that anything can be gained from classifying it as a horror film. I, so, or that, th- I don't think thrillers are quite as cut and dry as you are making them out to be. Oh, I'm sure they're not. You, I don't, I don't think necessarily that a, a good guy, bad guy is an inherent in a thriller. I think that's more of like typical crime espionage. So if it was like a crime espionage thriller, then yeah, I think so. 
But I think the label of like what you said, a social thriller, psychological thriller is more apt for it because I think it does necessitate you to think a lot more about it because I think also usually with horror, the source of horror is more clearly defined than is in this film necessarily. Because I'm, I sh I'm, really, sh I'm really struggling as to what the intended source of horror would be if this was read as a horror film. I can think, I, I think it makes a lot more sense if it's a psychological or social thriller where it's up to you, the audience, to try to piece together what's happening and what you think is right and wrong. And so even a morality reading like the author from The Guardian would make sense within a thriller. But if we are to read this as a horror, then that would mean it has a confused and muddled source of horror. See, I don't, I don't think it does. I think the source of horror is, is exactly what you you alluded to about what makes the ending of the film so good. It's the fact that this is a film that is telling us that in this society, we are all, regardless of where we fall on the spectrum, unable to be anything but parasites. Whether we are at the top or at the very, very bottom of the house, um, we are all forced into this role. And I think that, that that's, that's the source of horror. And it, I think it carries through for all three families, I think it carries through at the end of the film where we realize that, um, like you said, that creates the ending of, a, of the film to be something where we have to ask ourselves, like, is this just the way it is, right? Is This is just, there is no other chance because this monster, in this case, this more theoretical monster of society, um, has come back um, and will always be there and we will never escape it. Um, so I, I just feel like what makes it valuable for looking at it as a horror film is that it just, again, creates a little bit more um, room for us to build up this, this sort of metaphorical uh, framework, right? Where we can say things like society is a monster according to um, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen's seven theses, or, um, you know, that each of the family members, you know, rides this fine line of being uh, both the the survivors right the the victims but also the villains right i just think it allows for readings of the place and of the characters in a richer way than most thriller look at because they have their own things that they're interested in i think you're right i was rude to the thriller genre it is much more complex than i than i alluded to but i think that their interests generically speaking are different than the interests of horror and i think this is a film that is too rich to not read through all available lenses. Um, and that's why I think it needs to be included as a horror film, just as much as it is a social thriller, a black comedy, a satire. So then it's not really that it is a horror film, but that rather it is, it has elements of horror and that is a genre that it could fall into. I don't know if I would go so far as to say that it's not horror at all, but I think that at the end of the day, this is a haunted house narrative. And as such, to me, that means that we have to look at it through many lenses, but horror has to be one of them and maybe even a dominant lens. Well, then I actually don't think we're disagreeing that much at all because uh, what I think I was just ma merely misinterpreting your original argument. I thought that you were saying this it was only a horror film and it could only be read through that. But I, I don't, that doesn't sound like that's what you're saying at all. No, I'm saying like the best films that we have talked about, 
It is using the tropes and the elements of multiple genres. I just think that one of the great ways to look at this film is to apply that haunted house lens, that scholarship of horror, and it just makes it an even richer text. Well, yeah, then I, I think I could, I will absolutely agree to that. I'm all for more lenses to be able to look at a text. The more lenses you have, the more clear picture you're going to be able to get from looking at the text. And so, yeah, I, I think a haunted house lens would be very interesting to view Parasite through and very apt, not, not just interesting, like as a thought experiment, but I think it works as well. And that makes sense. But I think it's just one of the many lenses that it can be used to view this film. And not, not necessarily, I don't even know if I would go as so far as to say the dominant lens, but a very valuable lens. Excellent. Then two have entered, two have left. We more or less agreed like we end up doing almost every episode. Yeah, we, we came to a more nuanced opinion. We started from two opposing sides. We fought valiantly and then we entered being more educated, more enlightened. I don't know, something. We entered better off than we started. Yes, and that's what you, matters. You put your own moral together, however you want to say it. You, you do that work. I'm not, I'm not moralizing the story for you. <laughs> that's like Parasite. I won't do the heavy lifting for you. You can have to think about it. Excellent. We would love to hear what the rest of you have to think about this film and whether or not it should be counted as horror and why that may or may not matter. We're going to move on to a film that is pretty clearly, by most people's standards, a horror film. Whether or not it is a zombie film is open for discussion, though. And that is the next film being... 2002's 28 Days Later. So, again, we feel like this is a good choice uh, for COVID-19 times. And we hope that you will watch the film again. And as you're watching it, you can ask yourself... Not is this a horror film, because I'm pretty sure it is, but <laughs> is this a zombie film and does that matter? Um, and so we look forward to our next discussion. In the meantime, be sure to give us a like, share us with your friends, reach out to us on social media, which are linked in the description of this, and stay safe and stay healthy.